Hello, everyone. Thank you for watching another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I'm here with two great financial voices that many of you already listened to. Uh, we've got Clint Russell, former real estate mortgage broker and host of Liberty Lockdown. And we have Peter Schiff, the CEO of Euro Pacific Capital. Peter, thank you for joining the show again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back on. Absolutely. So the first question I got for you is the Fed is finally going to raise interest rates and they say it's going to be to 2% by the end of the year. Why is that not enough in your opinion and what should they actually be raising them to? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody is forecasting that the rates will get all the way up to 2%. I think people are thinking maybe one and a half, uh, maybe they'll get up to 2% at some point in 2023. But uh, most people are not looking for that many hikes. In fact, if they really were going to get to 2%, they probably would have moved by more than 25 basis points in the hike that they did on, on Wednesday. But I think these rate hikes are really too little, too late to do anything about inflation. If anything, inflation is going to keep getting worse uh, as the Fed is hiking rates, because even though they're hiking rates, real rates are actually falling because the real rate is what's important when it comes to inflation. That's the difference between the nominal interest rate and the inflation rate. And, and what you really need to fight inflation is positive real interest rates. You need to discourage people from going out and spending and borrowing, and you need to encourage them to delay consumption and save more. And they'll do that if they can earn a good positive return on their savings. But nobody's getting a positive return on their savings. Their savings are getting destroyed by inflation. And getting an extra quarter point or even an extra one or two points when inflation is 8% or more is not an, an inducement for you to save money. It encourages you to continue to spend as fast as you can to get rid of your money before it loses value. And so inflation is going to keep getting worse. It seems as if the... Because of that, because of what you just described, that the uh, you know you have to get real positive interest rates over the rate of inflation. There isn't the will, nor is there any mechanism by which they could actually do that without bankrupt bankrupting the country. Uh, is that is that accurate? That essentially they can't do it without going insolvent. Well, I think the country is already bankrupt. The reason that we don't have to admit it is because the Fed's got rates at zero. I mean, that's how we're able to afford all of this debt is because rates are so low. But if the Fed allowed rates to rise to a level that was high enough to fight inflation, it would be too high for a overleveraged economy to withstand. In fact, the only solution that the Fed might see to the problem of too much debt is to inflate it away. And that's one of the reasons that the Federal Reserve has been creating so much inflation over the years is that they see it as the lesser of the two evils. They think that inflation is better than default or depression. And they just thought they can control it. Uh, but obviously they can't. It's now out of control. Uh, they have a lot more inflation than they bargained for. And it's going to get worse. Well, I think I know the answer to this question. But, uh, you know, blame for inflation is being shifted from the U.S. economic policy to Putin and the war in Ukraine, how much of this inflation would exist without the Russian conflict? Well, none of it has been created by the Russian conflict. I mean, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, whatever bad things he's doing, he doesn't have his hand on our printing press. He's not the one that's printing money in the United States. He's not spending money. He's not signing on to any you know, U.S. spending bills. I mean, that's our Congress 
that is voting to spend this money, and it's our Federal Reserve that's printing it. You know, they were blaming inflation on COVID. COVID didn't do anything to cause inflation. It was the way the government reacted to COVID. It was our fiscal and monetary policy that was a response to COVID. That's what caused the inflation, not COVID. Uh, And the same thing is going on with Russia. But what COVID provided the government with was an excuse. It could blame inflation on COVID. And now it's doing the same thing with Russia. And I expect this to continue as long as that situation is ongoing. Politicians will see it as a convenient scapegoat. Oh, prices are up because of Putin. They even talk about it. Putin's price hikes, Putin's price hikes. So it it deflects uh, the criticism uh, and the blame from where it really belongs. And that's the U.S. Federal Reserve for printing the money and the U.S. Congress and, and the White House for spending it. So Russia has been removed from the SWIFT banking system, but since 2014, they've been working on their own independent system through the SPFS. Uh, They've also recently been reinforcing their own war chest and making energy deals with China. My question for you is, is this enough to make them financially independent from the U.S. and the world banking system, or do you think it's going to fail? No, I I don't think Russia needs the U.S. banking system. And if you look at some of the allies that Russia still has, some of the countries that are still trading with Russia, including China, but also India and other uh, countries, you're still talking about almost half the world's population. So even if the sanctions remain on indefinitely, uh, I think Russia will be able to survive. But I I don't expect, I think there's a lot of interest in Europe uh, to bring this a conflict to a resolution. So I do expect it to happen eventually. I mean, it may unfortunately uh, linger on for a while before ultimately uh, that happens. But I think the bigger casualty could be the status of the U.S. dollar, which I think was in jeopardy anyway because of our uh, profligacy when it comes to spending and our excesses with money printing, you know, our huge trade deficits and budget deficits. Uh, Ultimately, that was going to sink the dollar. Uh, But this just, you know, adds to the problem because I don't think this sits very well. I mean, if you're China and you're just kind of observing the problems that Russia is in because of the U.S. dollar and you're thinking, I don't want to be in a similar situation. I mean, China is not exactly our best friend uh, when it comes to politics. There's a lot of criticism of China. A lot of people regard China as our enemy, even though they're our number one Uh, supplier of goods. And I think either China or Japan is our largest lender, our our biggest banker. So we borrow so much money from China uh, and China allows us to consume so many goods that we don't produce, yet somehow they're our our big enemy. Uh, But China knows uh, that they're regarded as an enemy and they may do something that the U.S. doesn't approve of. And do they really want to risk the U.S. weaponizing the dollar, the way it's weaponized it against Russia. They've got way more dollars than Russia, way more U.S. treasuries. They are far more exposed uh, than Russia is to the dollar. So if I were China, I'd be hastening my exodus from any dependence on the U.S. SWIFT system on the dollar. I'd be dumping uh, my U.S. treasuries and my dollars. I wouldn't want to have any of my reserves in dollars. I would much rather have reserves in gold Right, something over which the U.S. government has no control than worthless fiat money over which the U.S. government has absolute control. Yeah, so since 1974, we've had an agreement with the Saudis that we would protect them militarily in exchange for OPEC oil production being priced in dollars, therefore 
securing the dollar as the world reserve currency. But as this conflict with Russia unfolds, the Saudis won't even pick up the phone for Biden, and they've entertained the idea of pricing some of their oil in Chinese yuans. Uh, and as relations with the Saudis grow tenuous and as they grow increasingly warm between China and the Saudis, could this threaten our world reserve currency status even more than it already was? Well, absolutely. A key to the dollar status is the petrodollar. And that's something that Nixon understood early on. You know, when he removed gold backing from the U.S. dollar, he immediately cut that deal with the Saudis so that our dollar could be backed by their oil because we needed to have something behind the dollar so you couldn't get gold for your dollars, but at least you can get oil for your dollars. And so that situation has maintained itself, and it's certainly helped to benefit the U.S. in preserving this privilege of issuing the world's reserve currency. But you're right. I mean, the relationship between the U.S. and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has deteriorated. And I know uh, that the Saudis, looking over the political landscape in the U.S., recognize that they're not exactly that popular over here. And they could become a political scapegoat in the future for something. Um, and, you know, right or wrong, I'm not necessarily taking the side of the Saudis. I'm just trying to see things from their perspective that do we really want to uh, be in this position? We, we, we have this vulnerability to the United States. Meanwhile, they can look at the ties that they have with China that are far greater today than they were back in the 1970s when this deal was cut. You know, China is far more important to Saudi Arabia. They buy a lot more stuff from China than they do from us. And, you know, China's got a big military, too. Do they really need the protection of the United States? Uh, and, and so we could easily be driving the Saudis, as well as the Russians, closer to an alignment with China than they were before. And all of this is potentially detrimental uh, to not only the U.S. dollar, but to the American standard of living that depends on the overvalued dollar uh, for that standard. Well, it seems it seems as if the the unipolar moment for the U.S. is kind of at its end game here. And and I don't understand exactly what what the game the the U.S. is playing. Uh, they're using the nuclear uh, financial sanctions options against Russia in a way that is making the Saudis and the Chinese and all these other countries basically pick sides. You know, do they want to be part of a bipolar world order or do they want to try and play along with this unipolar moment for America still? And I don't understand the the end game here. Are they like it seems as if we are actually playing a game of chicken where we are telling everybody else, you know, you can either still ride with America or we're going to break apart into a bipolar world order. Uh, is that your view of things? And if so, why why is it that Ukraine is worth all of this? Why why are they doing it? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know that the Biden administration even has an end game. I think they're you know <laughs> trying to take advantage of the crisis. Uh, you know, that's what you do in politics. Don't let a crisis go to waste and uh, try to use it for your political purposes. Uh, but I don't know that we have any broader ambitions than that. I, I, maybe the Biden administration doesn't realize, uh, you know, what what they're risking here and, you know, you know, what 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 the potential consequences are and the stakes, because obviously if we have these sanctions on Russia, but China is ignoring these sanctions and continuing to trade through Russia and allow Russia to use China to kind of circumvent the sanctions, now we're in a box because now, you know, we got to sanction China too if we want the sanctions to work. 
but can we risk doing that? And, but if we don't do that, then it's going to call into question the efficacy of the sanctions. But if we do do it, you know, we've, we, we've taken this thing to a whole new level and, you know, we've really picked a fight that we can't win. I mean, people think that we hold all the cards in the relationship with China, but we don't because China doesn't need our dollars. They, we need their stuff. You know, they make actual stuff that Americans buy all the time and, and that we rely on. All we do is print money. I mean, they got a printing press. They can print all the money they want. They don't need our printing press, but we need their factories, right? We need their workers, right? So they're the ones that are in the stronger position, not the United States. Yeah. So, Peter, last time I had you on my show, you were saying that the world would not trust another fiat currency to be a world reserve currency after the dollar has let them down. And you were saying that you think it has to go back to gold. But my question is, even though that makes logical sense, do you think that's what people will ultimately choose? Because it doesn't seem that rationality has a ton to do with any economic decisions that are made anymore. Well, it's not even really about what the people choose. It's what the governments choose as the reserve for their currency. I mean, what can they back their currency with uh, that will have real value, that will have liquidity in the market and that, you know, their people can trust. And most of the world's central banks already own gold. Uh, and so it's just a question of shoring up their reserves and accumulating more. I mean, gold functioned as the primary reserve prior to the U.S. dollar supplanting it. And originally, the only reason the dollar was accepted as, in, as a replacement for gold was because it was backed by gold, and not only backed by gold, but redeemable on demand for gold. Uh, and so I think it makes a lot of sense for the world to go back to, to that than just take a chance on another currency. I mean, I mean, why would the euro work any better than the dollar? Why would the yen work any better? I mean, even though uh, Europe and Japan may be in a better fiscal position than the, the U.S., they're certainly not in a better f fiscal position now than the U.S. was back when Brenton Woods was adopted. And, you know, if our economy got so corrupted by having that status, imagine what it would do to Europe or Japan. So it makes no sense uh, for the world to just get rid of one fiat currency only to replace it with another. Uh, what the world needs is real money uh, backing the currency. That's the only way to have real stability, uh, to get rid of all of these massive global economic in, uh, imbalances, and not to give one nation this exorbitant privilege of being able to just live off of everybody else and consume what everybody else produces and borrow what everybody else saves. It, it seems to me like the the CBDC, the central bank digital currency rollout that we're now seeing white papers in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, all over the, the world, really, uh, China as well, is is probably the end game for what the central banks would like to do. They would like to shift from paper fiat to digital fiat. Uh, do you think that this plan is doomed to failure and that they would ultimately end up going the, the gold reserve route? Because it seems like they are pretty dead set on the CBDC side of things. Yeah, well, I can see why they'd want to do that. It just makes it easier to create inflation even faster. And it gives the government more power to micromanage the economy and spy on its citizens. So you can see why, you know, corrupt governments would be in favor of that. Uh, but it's certainly a step in the wrong direction as far as uh, individual liberty and prosperity and freedom and privacy are concerned. So 
uh, that's not a good thing, but it's certainly not a answer to the problem of high inflation because, you know, whether you have fiat paper currency or fiat digital currency, it's the same thing. So if we are going to move to a digital currency, it needs to be backed by real money, which is easy to do. I mean, it's easier to back your digital currency with gold than your paper currency with gold. I mean, in fact, it, I mean, the gold standard actually would work better when married with a digital currency than it was when it was, you know, married to a paper currency. So, you know, it would work much better. And, and so that's where I think we're ultimately headed. I mean, the road to get there is hard to say exactly, but ultimately that's the only thing that I think is going to work. You know, you have certain countries that have had hyperinflation, big monetary crises, and how do they stop it? Well, they end up, you know, coming out with a new currency and they peg it to the dollar or something like that to try to you know, restore confidence. Well, if the dollar's crashing, you know, what are we going to peg it to? We can't just say, oh, now it's pegged to the euro. I mean, that's not going to work. Um, so when a, when a major currency like the dollar, uh, you know, comes into a crisis, you know, gold, I think, is the only place we can turn. And the same thing, if, if the crisis in the dollar sparks a crisis in the euro or the price, crisis in the yen or the RMB, you know, where are these central banks going to go? They've got to go to gold. I mean, there's a fantasy out there among some of the Bitcoin maximalists that they're going to go to Bitcoin, but there's no way that's going to happen. That's just a pipe dream. So um, I tend to agree with both of you that the Biden administration doesn't really seem to have an end game in mind with what's going on with Ukraine and our relations with Saudi Arabia and our energy sector. It, 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 none of it makes any sense. But as um, let, let's say Saudi Arabia actually does stop pricing oil in dollars, uh, it seems like there's nothing uh, there's nothing too bold from a military standpoint that we would be willing to do. It seems like we would be able we'd be willing to try to do regime change in Saudi Arabia or maybe Venezuela, someplace where they can price more oil. What do you see the United States being willing to do on a worldwide scale to maintain that uh, that dominance as the world reserve currency? Well, I don't really know what we could do. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I don't think that we could threaten um, the Saudis or any other country, you know, if they moved away from the dollar. I mean, what are we going to do? Uh, especially, you know, if, you know, they, they make some type of deal with, with the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese has a formidable military. I mean, what are we going to do? Um, so I, I just don't think we, we, we recognize how vulnerable we are. I mean, we're not going to go start a war. I mean, I mean, we're willing to impose sanctions, uh, but, we're, you know, the sanctions won't work at that point. I mean, we, we you know, obviously uh, the Saudis and the Chinese would be prepared for sanctions. I mean, that's not going to bother them um, if we even, you know, try to impose them. But ultimately, it's the world that's going to sanction the U.S. by moving away from the dollar. I mean, and taking away that privilege. I mean, that is going to be the ultimate sanction when we have to produce in order to consume. When we have to borrow, I mean, we have to save in order to borrow. That's going to be a, 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 a huge uh, eye-opener uh, and game-changer for the U.S. economy. It's a day of reckoning that we have been avoiding for years uh, by kicking that can down the road. Well, I, I think that's where we're at right now is, is that this is the day of reckoning. And, and all of our, our mechanisms to control the world 
uh, via sanctions and things like that are basically losing their teeth. You know, we're, we're not we're no longer able to get every country to just do what we want based off of these pressures, which usually at the end of an empire that results in war. Uh, unfortunately, we now have weaponry that can end the world if we go that route. And uh, you don't have the option of a world war with a bunch of nuclear powers involved without it escalating to that point. Do you think that ultimately cooler heads prevail and that we we pull back from the the you know no fly zone proposition in in Ukraine or or are well, these people think, that crazy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to do the no fly zone. I think uh, I mean, I hope we're not going to do that. I hope the situation resolves itself. Um, but you know. Yeah, I mean, I do think at the end of the day, I mean, the politicians are, you know, they, they, they do act in their own self-interest. And I don't think any, any of them would think a nuclear war is possibly in their self-interest. Uh, and, and so I don't think we're going to push it that far. I would imagine that the stakes would be high enough for all parties concerned that it's not going to end up, you know, in, in that situation. I mean, I mean, I hope, I hope that's the case. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, maybe I'm just an optimist, although a lot of people don't accuse me of that. They think I'm being too pessimistic. But, you know, I'm not always looking for the worst case scenario for any uh, situation. Yeah. So mistakes have already been made that can't be reversed on an international scale and on a uh, domestic scale. But what would you advise to the people in charge right now as far as energy regulations go, as far as financial decisions go? What would you recommend to the government and what would you recommend to individuals? Um, what can they do to protect themselves in the incoming so, disaster? I assume you're talking about the U.S. government. Yes. Um, well, oh, certainly with respect to the oil industry and every other industry, I mean, the, what the government can do to help is to get out of the way. Just get rid of as many rules and regulations that are impediments to the development of, of oil and gas and, and just make it clear that the government is going to step back and, and stop threatening the industry with windfall profit taxes. I mean, oh, who, who's going to want to invest more money in, 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 in uh, exploration development if the politicians are threatening to take away whatever profits uh, those risky investments uh, may ultimately lead to? Uh, but we need smaller government. It would, be, it would be nice if we had lower taxes on all companies, but we can't have lower taxes unless we cut government spending, which is something that nobody wants to do. Uh, there are some politicians you know, that want to cut taxes, but those same politicians aren't willing to cut spending, so they're willing to run bigger deficits and have the Fed print more money. I mean, so all the politicians have been uh, pounding the table uh, for inflation, and, and, and now we're reaping the consequences of, of that. And uh, so if I you know, could be advising, I'd be given the same advice I've always given with respect to the U.S. economy is, you know, when you're in a hole, you stop digging. And so let's let interest rates go up, let the free market work, force the government to cut spending uh, and, and deal with the consequences. I mean, it's not going to be pretty. People are going to lose money. Uh, asset prices are going to fall. Companies are going to fail. But that will be the beginning of a badly needed restructuring. The U.S. economy is badly misaligned. Resources are misallocated. All sorts of malinvestment. Uh, that has to change. You know, people have to start uh, saving again. We have to start investing and producing. We can't run these huge trade and budget deficits. We've, you know, we've been delaying uh, doing the right thing for so long that now doing the right thing is going to be a lot more difficult than had we done it 
a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But the longer we wait, the worse it's going to be. So just because we made the mistake of waiting this long doesn't mean we continue to repeat that mistake and wait even longer. We need to deal with the problem now because the longer we wait to do it, the more difficult it's going to be. Uh, I, I don't think any, any of the three of us are going to disagree with that. It, it's absolutely vital that we do so. However, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely that we do any of those totally pragmatic, uh, reasonable things that you just said. So I'm curious if you ever give any thought as to how this plays out in, in the U.S. Do you see secession as a p potential solution to this as we have the divide between red and blue states growing ever more stark? Uh, is that is I mean, obviously I want it to be peaceful, but I'm just curious if you've ever considered that as a possible end game here. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could happen. I mean, there's nothing that says that 100 years from now, we're still going to have 50 United States. I mean, the, the union could easily break apart, you know, whether uh, that would result in a civil war or not. I, I would hope not. But I would think that if one state were allowed to leave uh, without a war, uh, a lot of states would follow. And uh, it would probably end up being a good thing. Although I don't see if a state leaves, uh, what happens to its share of the national debt? I mean, maybe the U.S. government would say, hey, you can leave, but you've got to take part of the debt. But then that, what happens if that state just defaults and says, hey, this wasn't our debt. We're defaulting. We're starting with a clean slate. So I don't know. It's going to be very difficult. But maybe you wouldn't start to see the union break apart until we had hyperinflation and it was pure economic chaos. And so the debt didn't even matter anyway. Uh, but, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, you, know, you know, put that past us that that could happen. I mean, the problem is big government. And, uh, you know, the biggest government is coming from Washington, D.C. And, you know, if Washington isn't going to roll back government on its own, uh, then the states may decide that they need to disassociate themselves from that union so that they can liberate their citizens uh, from government. I mean, the, the federal government was established to protect the states. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be involved in, uh, you know, the economy of the states. It wasn't supposed to be levying taxes other than during a war. And in fact, that was why we had the federal government to negotiate treaties and to protect us if we're invaded. But it wasn't to get involved in the economy to the extent that it is. So the federal government is not fulfilling its original purpose. It is vastly exceeding the powers authorized to it by the Constitution. And so it would make sense for this, a state that joined the union to secede from this union because it's no longer the union uh, that any of the states that ratified the Constitution thought that they were joining. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so uh, we'll see. I mean, I mean, I always thought if I was the governor of a state, that might be one of the things I would try to do <laughs> is go for a secession uh, and, and see what would happen. Oh, run, Peter, run. We need you. <laughs> or at least try to tell the federal government that we were going to honor the Constitution in our state. And we're not going to allow the U.S. government to do things that are unconstitutional within our state. Because right now they run roughshod over the states and they do whatever they want. And in the process, they trample over all the rights that were secured uh, to the residents of those states by the Constitution. So last question for you, Peter. Something that I've always appreciated about you is you tell the truth no matter who's in office. Uh, anyone who listened to you during the Trump years would definitely not think you're a Trump supporter. And anyone who listens to you now would not mistake you for a Biden supporter. Uh, you always pointed out when the Republicans were being rhinos, when they were not being fiscally responsible and that they would hide behind 
the banner of the GOP as fiscal conservatives and you would expose them. So we're coming up on an election this year and the political capital for the Democrats is in serious jeopardy after lockdowns and ridiculous sanctions they put on the United States over the last year and a half, two years. So what would you tell people who are going to the ballot box to look out for when they're voting these Republicans in? How can they know that they're going to get someone who's actually going to be fiscally responsible and actually going to try to decrease the size of the government? Well, they're probably not. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't have any reservations <laughs> yeah. that anybody who's going to get elected is going to be fiscally responsible. But in general, I would say that the Republicans will be less irresponsible than the Democrats. Now, I mean, that's not necessarily true in every case. Um, you can look at a guy like a Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat and who is probably less irresponsible than many of the Republicans. So it's probably a case by case situation. But overall, the, the Democratic Party, I would expect, would be more fiscally irresponsible than the Republican Party. But uh, the key would be just to get the divided government again, just to make sure that the Democrats don't have both houses of Congress and the White House, uh, because I, the, the, the Republicans tend to be a much better party when they're not in power. Yes. Uh, but once they have the White House and Congress, then forget about it. They're terrible. But if you have a Democratic president and at least the Republicans control one, if not both houses of Congress, it's better. Right. It's 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 not good, but it's not as bad. <laughs> yeah. The 1990s. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me again, Peter. I'd love to have you back uh, another time. Where can people keep up with what you're doing and follow your work? Well, anybody who wants to listen to me, I do my podcast, The Peter Schiff Show. You do two or three a week, shiftradio.com. You can listen on my YouTube channel or any place where they have podcasts. If you have wealth that you want to protect, that you don't want to see taxed away by inflation, and you want to adopt some of my investment strategies that I think will really uh, do well in this stagflationary environment that we're in, uh, which is going to be very different than the environment we've been in, especially when it comes to investment returns, you really have to have an unconventional strategy, not the type of strategy that people have been pursuing uh, during the bubble. You need a whole new strategy as the air comes out. And you know you can work with me at my company, Euro Pacific Capital. Um, Europac.com is the website. It's up above my shoulder. Also, Euro Pacific Asset Management. Uh, you know I manage a uh, individual portfolios as well as a family of mutual funds. And my funds and the separate accounts that I manage are specifically designed to do well in this environment. We're getting out of U.S. assets, out of overpriced U.S. stocks and bonds. We're buying good inflation hedge stocks, value stocks, dividend payer stocks, focusing on uh, you know, real things, companies that have real assets, plant and equipment, real resources, whether it's industrial metals, agricultural commodities, precious metals, uh, companies that earn money now, not uh, that maybe will earn money in the distant future. They have pricing power. They sell things that consumers need and they'll keep buying them even if the prices go up, which means the dividends can go up. And I'm collecting income in foreign currencies, which I expect will appreciate against the U.S. dollar. We're investing in emerging markets, which I think will be primary beneficiaries of the dollar's demise. I think as the American standard of living goes up, the living standards in these countries will rise. And I want investments that will be tied to those rising living standards. All right. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Uh, I will have links in the description where people can go follow you and keep up the good work. Uh, thank you. Same with you.
So, Clint, what do you think? I think we're fucked, Reed. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, uh, first off, I, I want to tell people, you know, I have a lot of people that listen to Liberty Lockdown that are constantly asking me for financial advice. I think that if you're looking for investment vehicles, this is not financial advice, but I would I would highly encourage you to look into Schiff's company and and what he's planning for people because I think that the environment that he's been warning about for the past decade that a lot of people have given him a hard time about about not being right on timing, I think that that's what the next decade will look like. So he was early but not wrong, you know, and I I think that that's that's the biggest recommendation I would have to people is like don't dismiss his ideas simply because he was early. You know, that's the right. same thing you could have said about Ron Paul in 2005 when he was rolling, uh, warning about the real, the coming real estate apocalypse. And three years later, he was right. So I think that's going to be the same story with Peter Schiff is that he was early, but not wrong. Yeah, it's funny. The first time I had you on my show uh, just about a year ago right now, we were actually talking about how this would all play out. And I remember Saudi Arabia was one of those key uh, pieces on the chessboard that we weren't sure how that was going to work because a lot of people don't realize what a significant role they play in our dominance as the world reserve currency because they they uh they price oil on the worldwide market in dollars so that just gives us a ton of an uh, just a huge advantage but that seems to be slipping away without even much of a conflict i mean it seems to just be kind of deteriorating and no one's really doing anything about it um are you kind of surprised that that's the way it's going and it's not really has it hasn't well, turned into a flashpoint yet at all? <laughs> well, it has turned into a flashpoint. I, I mean, I think that's what Ukraine is. I think that is it is the flashpoint. And sure. And if if left to the politicians to decide, I think we will end up in war with Russia, hot war with Russia. Uh, you know, Peter is far more optimistic about this than I am. However, I think that the people here don't have the will for it. And and when I think about what it requires to win a world war. You have to have the American people on your side or you have absolutely no chance of prevailing. So their only hope, and this gets very Alex Jonesy, but I don't care. It's the truth, would have to be a false flag. They would have mm -hmm. to run a crazy false flag to get the American people on their side. And unfortunately, I think that the American people would fall for it. You know, if they if they were if there was some sort of chemical weapons attack or something like that, I think that they could probably get a majority of Americans on board with this, but well, I've seen right now it's already at thirty-five percent favorability to enter it... nuclear war with Russia. <laughs> yes, I, I mean thirty-five percent, and and I I shared that and and said this is a you know this is an obvious damnation of democracy, and people were saying yeah it's only thirty-five percent though isn't that good? And it's like no, this is literal war with russia this isn't no fly zone this isn't imposing more sanctions this isn't any like soft lead up to war it's literal all-out war with russia 35 percent of people approve of that and who knows if that's accurate but if that is accurate that's fucking terrifying it's, because it's there has not yet been a false flag attack like you're like you're talking about so if right. there is that number is going to jump up from 35 percent, and that's fucking horrifying well not, not just that but it's not just hot war with russia that, that means 35% of people are that flippant about nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what we're really talking about is a nuclear apocalypse. So the fact that it's north of 1% is astonishing to me. So the fact that there's 100 million Americans that are like, yeah, nukes, cool. Like, what are you talking about? These people have completely 
detach themselves from reality. And I think that this is an important point to make is that, you know, the the psyop that they put us through over the past two years really inclined us to be to be ready for something like this. You know, that people are depressed, they're anxious, they want an external enemy, you know, they yeah. want someone to focus on that's outside of their US government uh, boogeyman to say, oh, look, this guy's worse, you know, and and let's have any reason to galvanize. Let's have any reason to believe in, in coming together again. I think a lot of people are looking for that, but I, I, my job, our job is to encourage people to come together as the people, to not do it on behalf of the government and to not lead us into World War III. I mean, no one walks away from that war unscathed that includes the wine mom in you know Massachusetts that thinks that it's not going to affect her. I mean, we right. are already being affected by this and we haven't even gone to war. And and it's just, it could get significantly worse. I mean, the, the financial repercussions of the lockdowns and the massive amount of printing is already extraordinary. If we actually do that, the financial system comes crashing down and and you're also at war with nuclear powers. That is a recipe that I have no interest in ever seeing come to pass, and we are we are this close to it, man. Like they, all they have to do is no fly zone, and we're there. So everybody in the liberty movement needs to be just unbelievably on fire. Like everything that I've been about for the past two years with lockdowns, you need to funnel all of that energy, multiply it by a billion, and go when it comes to stopping this from being our future. Yeah, because this is worse. Like I mean, yeah, lockdowns so are much terrible. Worse. And the economic fallout of it has been horrific. But talk about nuclear war. <laughs> it's going to be a billion times worse. Um, yep. And it's discouraging. You would think the last two years would have woken people up. That was my whole optimism throughout all of it was like, wow, this is so bad that people who have never paid attention to anything suddenly have to because it's entered their school board. It's entered their city council. It's entered their local government. So they can't ignore it anymore. But disappointingly, it seems like a lot of people are still falling for it. Uh, and even in certain groups where we had hoped they'd become immune to this, like not just the America first crowd, but literally like the liberty movement, there's large swaths of people gobbling this up. And that's really sad. The former chair of the party, Nick Sarwak, you know, I, this is. I can't say I'm surprised by that one, though. Let's well, yeah, I know, I know, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> yeah, it, that you you would think, like, if there was one thing we could agree with Nick Sarwak on, World War Three is bad. Yeah, you, <laughs> you, know, you know, if we could, if we could go back to last summer when you and I went up to the front of the room and asked him why he thought the non-aggression principle wasn't violated by theft, now I would ask him why do you support World War Three? Because that's actually like a worse take than saying theft doesn't violate the nap. <laughs> oh, it, it's significantly worse just because it, it, it affects all of us. Yeah. Uh, well, here's my working thesis that I've been, I was actually thinking about this as I went to bed last night. I think a lot of people have realized the depth of the lies. Like I, I think that they're, they're starting to come to terms with that, that the media is lying, that the politicians are lying on both sides of the aisle. Um, unfortunately, I think that ultimately they don't know where to turn. And, and a lot of them are, are simply like even though they have ex accepted the fact that the current political establishment is completely out to get them and and lying to them and deceiving them and and just abusing them they they are still holding on to this concept that it's reformable that that they can you know midterms we can get people in there that that'll fix this as opposed to just acknowledging well perhaps this system is fatally flawed and perhaps you know the the disillusion of it uh is inevitable 
And I think that that's the that's our job is to try and get people to to stop with the fantasy of like, oh, we're gonna get you know 250 Thomas Masseys in Congress, and and we're gonna be able to get someone in charge of the Federal Reserve to either manage it in an Austrian economics fashion where they keep interest rates much much higher than they've been historically or they abolish it altogether like all of these are pipe dreams um but from the maga side i think that they are they they are still like even though they realize how bad it is like i i think about my mom a lot she still thinks like like i remember with the recall of gavin newsom she was like oh he's gonna get recalled so easily like this is great like california is <laughs> gonna be saved and i was like mom yeah. <laughs> it ain't gonna happen and and i think that that's what we're dealing with but on a on a global or not a global but a national scale um so that's my my take on it yeah to get back into a little bit what we were talking about with uh peter about economic fallout um if interest rates do come up to where they're supposed to be in a free market sense how high do you think they'd actually be and you know what would that imply for people who are in debt right now yeah well, I, I disagree with Peter actually on this. Um, I didn't want to do it on the show because I thought we only had a limited amount of time with him. But he was saying that interest rates, the uh, the Fed funds rate has to be north of the inflation rate. And I don't think that's true because of the, the leverage that exists in the system, the amount of debt that exists in the system. You know, the people that are out buying houses for, you know, starter homes for a million bucks, if interest rates get to four and a half percent on a 30 year mortgage, you're going to see a lot of people that were looking at buying that and saying, I can't buy that. Right. So I don't think he's correct that that wouldn't slow down the inflation right away. Like if it gets to two and a half percent at the Fed funds rate, that means mortgage rates are probably around five percent. That's enough to really put the brakes on the real estate market. And if you put the brakes on the real estate market, all of those home equity lines of credit that people are using to to fund their lifestyles right now, those start to dry up. And then all of a sudden it, it creates this cascade where people start to pull back on purchases and you start to have more of a deflationary environment. Uh, so I don't agree with him that they have to get to, uh, you know, interest rates higher than the actual inflation rate to prevent continuing increasingly worse inflation. Uh, but to answer your question, I mean, interest rates ought to be significantly higher than they've been over the past 10 years. Uh, they, any Any lender, any private lender will tell you you know, lending out money at 30 years for under 4% is lunacy. I mean, especially when there's risk involved. Like, why would you possibly lend out your money for three and a quarter percent for 30 years fixed? Like, no one would do that. No private investor right. would do that. So this entire market is predicated on a manipulation of of interest rates and the price of money, which is the underlying thing that drives the economy. Like, how much can you borrow money for? It's it's catastrophic. I mean, it, it never would have happened in a in a free market, and now we're paying the price. But the debt levels are so high, they can't increase interest rates to the the you know what the market would actually set them at. So it's very it's very complex, and it's all a government problem, and it's all a part of central banking, and it all should have never happened. But now that it has, and we're so far down the the rabbit hole, um, I'm really not sure how it plays out. But I think it's going to be catastrophic either side, whether it become a deflationary bust because they hike interest rates too aggressively. Or we end up with you know continuing stagflation or or hyperinflation. It's going to be it's going to be very painful for the American people. Yeah. So what do you think about when I asked him what the United States military would be willing to do to preserve that reserve currency <laughs> status? Um, yeah. I think he's right that they can't do a ton. 
What do you think they'd yes. be willing to try, though? Oh, I think that this is another thing I disagree with him on, and, and I think that he's being overly optimistic, but I hope he's right. I really, really yeah. hope he's right. Um, <laughs> I think they're willing to do anything, man. I think that they're willing to to have a no-fly zone if if the central bank bankers that that really run the world tell the American politicians, which they own, uh, to have a no-fly zone and go to war with Russia and risk a nuclear exchange, I think they'll do it if the American people will allow it. Um, if that's what the central bank guys think they can get away with. So I hope that's not what they want. I hope that the Great Reset is not a euphemism for nuclear holocaust. Right. Uh, but I'm not at all convinced that it isn't. You know, there, a lot of these people believe in population control. They, like they are, they are some really sinister folks, and and they have bunkers. They have you know tons of money where they can they can probably be safe, even if it ends up being a total catastrophe where say Russia were to drop a nuke on Georgia or some, you know, one of, one of these countries just to like send, send uh, the message to the United States um, that we're not going to be invaded. We're not going to be messed with forever. I mean, this, this is all, this is all on the table, you know, and I, I really, really do genuinely appreciate Peter's optimism, but I am not at all certain that never thought I'd hear are. anyone ever say that sentence. I do appreciate <laughs> Peter Schiff's optimism. <laughs> Well, but, I mean, just on this, just on this topic, yeah, just I on mean, this. <laughs> uh, otherwise, otherwise, I mean, I, I think I agree with him that it's unlikely, you know, I, mm. I do think it's unlikely because I think that if you have, if Russia feels pinned down and, and they feel as if they have no options and they use a nuke, well, mutually assured destruction is still on the table. And I'm not at all certain that the U.S. government wouldn't fire all of them. You know, I, I don't, right. I don't know. So, yeah. uh, God. God help us if it happens, man. I really, I really think it's unlikely, but the fact that it's even a potential, um, and that there are people in America that are advocating on behalf of that potential is just horrifying to me. Much less that there are libertarians. Uh, yeah, no you know, shit. Jesus Christ. So let's say we don't go into nuclear war, and let's say Saudi Arabia does end up pricing its oil completely in yuan's, and just like giving the United States the middle finger, and we don't do anything about it. We don't try to overthrow somebody in South America to get more oil exports, or we don't try to, you know, do regime change in Saudi Arabia. We just kind of let it all happen. What could the United States do to try to maintain any sort of relevance on the global market? If that goes away, what well, we'd have to overhaul our business sector here at home. We'd have to abolish tons of regulations, start producing the shit out of stuff again. But what would that actually look like in your mind if that actually unfolds? Yeah, I don't think they do any of that, honestly. I think that the CBDC push becomes the real play at that point, you know, where they just say, okay, well, we still have the majority of the world trading in US dollars. We're going to be the first to really perfect the CBDC. And we're going to have it be so ever present that it's just going to be the easiest thing for people to glob onto and pray to God that that's enough to keep the power of our reserve status in play. Uh, I think that that's, if they don't, if they don't go the militaristic route, I really think that's the only outlet they have. And I think that's why they've been, you know, floating the idea so much as of late is that like they realize, like, and I, I disagree again with Schiff on this, that he said that the Biden administration doesn't have an, 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 an end game. I don't think that that's true. I mean, well, well, Biden himself doesn't and Saki herself doesn't like these people are all right. idiots and they're actors, Puppets. but I'm talking yeah. about the people that really run this show. Um, I think it's, it's a, a little bit foolish to think that they don't have 
some game plan as to what they're trying to do. Like, uh, I do think that the people that that put those people in power absolutely have a game plan and they are trying to win it. You know, they are trying to be the the source of omnipotence into the next era. And um, it's just that the problem is all of our lives are caught up in this in this power struggle between the CCP and Putin and Russia and Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Uh, power structure and the bankers. Like we we are all caught up in the middle of it, and it's just uh, God. I, I just don't know how it. I, I, I honestly I don't know how it plays out. If I did, I'd be a billionaire because I'd I'd play the right side of it and you know write it to to glory. Yeah, so I'm at the point where I think the only way forward is forms of soft secession uh, because I don't really see a top-down fix to this anymore. You know, I used to believe in trying to get, you know, a good president in there and then getting good people in Congress and, you know, dismantling this system and building it back the way it's supposed to be. That's completely gone. I don't think that way at all anymore. I think the only power you have is from the bottom up. Um, right. And that's why I'm moving back to New Hampshire, going to contribute to the Free State Project, do everything I can to bolster the independence of New Hampshire. Anything, I mean, I, I'm also for actual secession, but anything that can move us in that direction. It seems, having moved to Florida, that you feel the same way, that there is no way to undo this from the top down, that this requires local activism and protecting yourself and your community. Is that pretty much where you are? Yeah, man. I, I mean... It's exactly how I, that last question I had with Schiff is like, I don't think that this is reformable. I don't think that you can actually get all these Masseys in office and, and right. save us. You know, like, I just don't, I don't see it happening on a federal level. Um, and honestly, like, I don't really trust DeSantis, but he's a, he's a one trillion bajillion times better governor than Gavin Newsom was. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I had to, I had to go and and live out my principles and be somewhere where someone respected my bodily autonomy and, and respected some of the demands that I have. And, and ultimately, you know, if the federal government were brazen enough to have intervened in that in a way that made it so that, you know, he couldn't preside over my decision-making, well, then that's the end of the United States. You know, that's, that's the end of states' rights. That's the end of uh, having any sort of protection on the state level, in which case I would have either fought or fled the, the country, which is what I, I've said many times, I would have probably just left because I don't think there's enough people here for us to prevail in any sort of conflict. So I, you know, that's, that's my belief is that a soft, soft, peaceful secession is the only, is the only path for a peaceful resolution to what, what ails us. I really believe that. And I just, I think that us, you know, Malice and Dave and all these other people that have been popularizing the idea of late have done us a great service in that. And I hope that it becomes less and less fringe. And I hope that the left starts to really consider it, you know, that they, they have such animus towards us. Yeah. Why not let us go? You know, right. like what, why, why don't you want California to be its own country? Like you guys, you guys don't share the values of like 75% of the land mass of the United States. Why do you want to be with us anymore? Just let us fucking go. We don't want conflict, but we happen to be really armed. So like, do you want conflict with us? Like, do you? And just kind of play play <laughs> yeah. a game of chicken and see, see if we can come to a peaceful resolution because of it. Yeah, I've become a Kaufmanite, I'm going to call it. Like, uh, <laughs> just listening to him over the last year, he's really convinced me that 
he just brings libertarianism to its most absolute form. You know, you and I and all, well, not all libertarians as we've been discussing in here, but any good libertarian doesn't want to try to control the state of Iraq or the state of Iran or whatever, like we're, or Ukraine or or (laughs) Ukraine. Like, we're just like, whatever, it's your business, not ours. We're going to stay out of it. Jeremy Kaufman has convinced me that that's the way we have to be about the United States too. Like Mm. I'm at the point, I don't care what California does. If they want to become a communist hellhole, as long as they're letting people leave, I really don't care. And I almost, I actually encourage them to do that now. It's like, fine, become as crazy as you can. Uh, and you'll deal with the own you'll you'll deal with the consequences of it on your own. And then places like Florida, New Hampshire, South Dakota, anywhere where um, you know they're at least moving more toward liberty. Hopefully, they can be beacons of freedom, inspiring other people to either move there or become more like them. Which is exactly what we would like the United States to be on the world stage. But so many people still have this statist mentality about this country like 250 years ago you know we had a declaration of independence and we crafted a constitution and because of that we all need to be united in this and we all need to be the same and we need to i just just don't think that anymore i'm just like fuck it i don't care (laughs) you know no i'm with you man and and i think that that's that was the idea of the country at its founding was that you would have these 50 laboratories of innovation oh i mean it wasn't 50 back then but you know what i'm saying yeah. Um, where you got to try different governmental models and you got to try different economic policies and things like that. And you could see which, which model worked best for the people. And then if you, if you liked one that was a state over, you could move there. And it was like, that, that is great. And I think that the, the sad truth is that as the United States itself became more and more anti-freedom, more totalitarian, really, um, that, that shining city on the hill, that example to the world, that example, even from a state level to a state level where, you know, you could say, OK, Florida is so much better than California or New Hampshire is. Um, all of that started to go away because on a federal level, we started to look so similar to all of these totalitarian dictatorships that we were fighting uh, over our you know past hundred years or so. And and now the, the difference between the two is so minimal. Okay, it really is. You know, I, I, I'm sure I'm going to get accused of, of uh, being a Putinite for saying this, but let's be honest. Like, is there is there a clear good nation when it comes to a U.S. versus Russia fight? Like, in terms of what we've actually done to the world in terms of warfare and invasion, imperialism, yeah, all dude, these things. Honestly, that... I'm going to say Russia looks like the good guy if you have to choose one. <laughs> if if you had options. to choose one, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, but but I would say it's it's clearly that it's clear that neither are a good guy right um, but but yeah in terms of like which is worse well yeah the u.s has been way worse <laughs> we just we just couch it in these you know pro-freedom pro-democracy type of argumentation but it's all propaganda and we all know that it's just a lie um so there is no longer a country that's really been an example of anti-interventionism or non-interventionism and and pro-free markets and pro-human liberty for which the world to compare itself to. And and I think that that's a huge failing of the United States in that that's what we were and we aren't that anymore. And now we are paying the consequences because the entire world looks like us and we look like shit. So that's, 
that's the new paradigm that we're dealing with. And I don't think people have really come to terms with it. All right. The last thing I want to ask you about, and I don't want you to badger him too much because he's not here to defend himself anymore. But um, I know you disagree with Peter on Bitcoin. Um, yes. I'm kind of in between you guys, to be honest. I'm not a Bitcoiner, but I think he's been too pessimistic toward it. Like, I mean, obviously he said it'll never reach X. It'll never reach X and it keeps reaching X. Um, I think he could be right that it's a bubble, but I think it's a bubble that could last 100 years. I mean, who knows? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. so you obviously can make money off of Bitcoin. And he's said that, too. Like, obviously, if you bought Bitcoin in 2017, uh, you'd be a lot richer than you were when you bought it. Um, but without badgering Peter too much, uh, just what do you think about Bitcoin? Um, I know you're you're much more uh, optimistic about it than he is. Yeah. I mean, because of the the fact that it's being adopted so globally, I think that it's it's a mistake to just assume that it's a bubble uh, because it's not backed by anything, which has been essentially his his take on it, that it's kind of like fiat. Uh, I agree with much of his argumentation about it. You know, I think that there are real questions as to why Bitcoin versus why other cryptocurrencies, if they're not backed for, by anything, why is Bitcoin clearly better? Well, in this situation, it's basically just about the network effect and that, that it is being utilized by so many millions of people, if not a billion people, probably uh, over the world. And it's like, well, that that has to be paid attention to. Like, you can't just dismiss it and say, well, because it's not backed by anything, it's just as worthless as, as paper currency. Well, the fact that it has a limited supply automatically makes it worth more than fiat in my view and i think that you're witnessing that firsthand in its in its market value um so whether or not bitcoin becomes the reserve currency of the world which i think it's ultimately like it's either going to be that or it's going to be a bubble like that's that's my personal take on it um i think it's a mistake not to hedge there to not to not be a participant in it in some fashion um, i think that a decentralized currency on a blockchain is ultimately the future of currencies and probably fiat currencies uh, globally. So it's so early, dude. Like I, that's the other mistake people make. It's like this technology has been around for a, a dozen years. Like why, why are we pretending to know whether or not this is ultimately viable, ultimately capable of being the reserve currency, um, ultimately capable of being either implemented in the governmental system or completely outside of it like i think that that's a possible future for it too like you could see complete universal bans on all non-cbdc's like that is a distinct possibility and i think bitcoiners don't don't give that enough credence either so like i have i have critiques for everybody involved with this topic and i think that basically my take on it is that hedging there makes a ton of sense and if you're not doing it i think that's a huge mistake um, but also because there have been dips i always tell people if you're going to hedge, make sure that you buy on a dip. Wait, because we've seen so many massive, massive pullbacks. When it was at 70, people thought it was going to 100. Well, now it's then it dropped all the way back to 30, and now it's back up to 44 or whatever it is today. Um, and I know pricing in, in, in dollar terms upsets Bitcoiners, but when you're talking about transitioning from fiat savings holdings into another asset class, well, the acquisition price makes sense, and it matters. So I think it's stupid to... to be mad about that. Hey, basically, what I'm saying is I have beef with everybody on this topic. Everybody, everybody is too um, they're too hard-headed on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like there's a some sort of religious 
war <laughs> with this topic that I don't I don't really appreciate. And I just think that people ought to be they ought to be learning as much as possible. They ought to be probably hedging there and uh, and keeping an open mind because I think that the story is yet to be written. Is there anything else you wanted to comment on uh, as far as the discussion went that uh, I haven't mentioned? Uh, not really. Uh, I just wanted to to mention that I have another big Austrian econ type guy, uh, Ola Schiff, on uh, that episode will be out tonight. So probably the same time you put this out uh, with Andrew from Nomad Capitalist. And we talk more about uh, expatriation and and becoming an expat and and things of that nature. So if you're if you didn't find the solutions um, from this episode with Schiff, I think that's uh, a worthwhile one to check out. So anybody can go search for Liberty Lockdown on YouTube or, uh, you know, your podcatcher. So thank you so much, man. Honestly, God, this was like a bucket list item for me. I have listened to Schiff for so many years. <laughs> I, I really think that he is um, he's a brilliant guy. He really he really understands. He's really trying to problem solve, too. You know, you talked about Kaufman. I think that Schiff is great in that he is doing many of the same things in terms of his own professional career, where he's trying to build lifeboats for people. And he may not talk about that very much because ultimately he's a, he's a capitalist and he's trying to profit on his side too. Um, but what he's doing is providing value to the world and we need a hell of a lot more of that. Yeah, 100%, man. And I'm really glad I had you on. I think this was a great uh, three-way conversation. I'd love to do something like this again sometime. Uh, I know you've got hey, a big... Any, anytime you want to do a three-way with me, I am I'm in. You know that. <laughs> I know that all too well. Um, I know you got a big week coming up. Uh, what, what's going on on Liberty Lockdown in the next few days and where can people keep up with that? Yeah. Uh, Nomad Capitalist tonight, Dave Smith Sunday, uh, scheduling with Roger Stone. I don't know exactly what date that is. And also uh, in talks with Jack Murphy to try and get him on. He hasn't been doing any shows in a long time. Um, and I really think that he has a lot of value to add. So I hope that he's willing to come on. I'm obviously not going to talk about any of the controversy shit. I think that that's dumb and pointless, but I, I would love to talk to him about his view of the world. He had an, an incredible guest on about a week ago where they talked about kind of the Th Thucydides trap that we're in with China and how Russia and the Ukraine situation is all part of that. So I would love to get his take there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the lineup. And then also I'll be speaking at the Ohio uh, Libertarian Party, uh, Texas, and I think Michigan. So uh, that's all in April. So if anybody wants to come out and see me talk live and have stage fright and shit my pants, that'll be a blast. Thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody, I will also tentatively be having Roger Stone <laughs> on the show. Uh, Clint and I lucked out. We had Chase Geyser hook us up with that connection. So that'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Shout also out to Chase. Yeah, Chase is awesome. Make sure you go check out his... Uh, his podcast he's the one america podcast um and yeah thank you for watching the show and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and look in the links in the description to follow me on odyssey and all the audio platforms and twitter facebook instagram all that happy stuff and, and subscribe to reed's audio podcast people i am sick of you only watching him on youtube i know he's handsome but he's also got those sweet pipes go subscribe to his audio right now thank you yeah clint clint went the opposite way he started with audio i started with video and it seems like nobody's caught on that there is an audio version there is so go check it out and i have a microphone now you know i'm not just like talking at a computer from five feet away anymore so you could actually understand what i'm saying so go check he's, it out. he's no longer talking through a can on a string so you gotta gotta check out the audio <laughs> version <laughs> all right thanks glenn thanks man